So what happens when you combine my insane curiosity with some of the world's most interesting people? You end up with incredible conversations full of stories, insights, and the defining moment that made them who they are today. This is The David Spizak Show. Hey, thanks so much for taking the time to join me. So today I want to talk about something I think is fascinating, and that is the reality that over the course of decades, over and over and over again, consistently, the biggest, uh, most successful companies and some of the most high-impact companies, unicorn companies that we've seen in the last two, three decades and beyond have been started by people that were entrepreneurs. We've heard the stories. They started in their dorm room. They started in their garage. They started in some type of a shared working space. But the fact remains that they started this oftentimes with little or no money, um, some type of a big idea, or they noticed some kind of a big need or some emerging technology, and they took action on it, and they were able to, by maybe the force of their own will, or because they were surrounded with the right people, uh, whether it's mentors or people they were working with directly, and they were able to create these incredible companies that are now household names. So you think about companies like an Apple, if you go back uh, into the early 80s, or if you think about Ubers or Airbnb or, or Facebook or any of these companies, it's just interesting that they were started not by huge companies that had tons of money, but by these small entrepreneurs that had a concept, an idea, a vision, and they were surrounded with the right people. And I started thinking about that, and I started to do some research online. I came across an article uh, by Forbes that came out on June 29th, and the title of the article was From Amazon to Zoom, Three Entrepreneurial Secrets and corporate lessons to launch unicorns. And I want to start out just with reading what really grabbed me in this article. So I'm, I'm going to quote completely from this article's first four sentences. Entrepreneurs have no money. Corporations are loaded. Entrepreneurs have little experience. Corporations are loaded. Entrepreneurs have access to few experts Corporations are loaded. Entrepreneurs have no reputation or brand. Corporations are loaded. And yet the history of the last 60 years shows that entrepreneurs have a much better track record than corporations in the launching and building of those unicorns. So they happen to call out, for example, why did Sam Walton beat Kmart. Kmart had a decades, decades, and decades head start over Sam Walton, and yet Sam Walton beat the snot out of him when the big box stores emerged. Jeff Bezos beat the biggest and the brightest booksellers in the world when the internet took off, Internet 1.0. Page and Bryn from Google beat the biggest information tech companies in the world when internet search took off and Mark Zuckerberg beat Rupert Murdoch when internet 2.0 emerged. And finally, Travis Kalanick and Chesky beat the long-established transportation and hospitality giants 
to dominate with Uber and Airbnb when Internet 3.0 emerged. So when you when you think about it, over and over and over again, these very small entrepreneurs started out with no access to experts, with very little, if any, money, with very little, if any, experience. In fact, think about this. People like Kalanick and Chesky, they had no real direct experience. They didn't have deep experience in the transportation or hospitality business. Zuckerberg had no experience in what he was doing. And yet they created these monstrous companies, these massively successful companies. So why is that? And it got me thinking. So number one, um, when they referred to embracing emerging, emerging industries, the thing that's interesting is small entrepreneurs have, well, first of all, let me call this out. Entrepreneurs at baseline, by and large, have risk aversion. I mean, they don't have risk aversion, right? So they don't have an aversion to taking a big risk out there. I mean, it's one of the uh, hallmarks of an entrepreneur is they are risk-oriented. They're willing to bet it all on themselves. If you think about it, it makes perfect sense. If anybody ever left a job, and this has happened more times than anybody can count, but for anybody who had a job, whether it was a mid-level paying job or a high-level paying job, they walked away from a job where they had stability, they had reliability, they had consistency in their paycheck to move in the direction where they would have no, uh, necessarily they wouldn't have any consistency. There was no predictability. There was no guarantee they would even be making money in the next month, two months, three months, or maybe even uh, a year or longer. And yet, they said, I'm going to do that. Well, what prompted them, what enabled them to do that is the fact that they actually were betting. They were going all in on two things. Their vision, whatever that was, could be a product or a service, and themselves. Now, ultimately, all of these folks managed to bring great people aboard, and this is equally important. They surround themselves with great people that share that vision. And they brought people on who shared that vision and also went all in. Oftentimes in startups, you see chief marketing officers, CEOs, COOs, CFOs that are making much less than they made in their previous lives. And sometimes they're not making anything at all. I could tell you from firsthand experience that I left a job making seven figures when I started my first software company and it took me 20 months before I made any income whatsoever, 20 months. And when I did make that income, I was making the same amount or a little bit, <coughs> excuse me, a little bit less than I was making 25 years before that when I was in my mid-20s. <coughs> so you just have to have that belief, and entrepreneurs do. So maybe it's not surprising that when emerging opportunities, industries, or technologies present themselves, that these entrepreneurs have a mindset that they are also going to go all in. They see those as an opportunity. And how do we compare or contrast that with a big established company? Now, whether you're in the real estate business, whether you're a car dealer, uh, whether you are um, in any other commercial industry, healthcare, or whatever it is, 
I mean, the reality is that big company has typically has money. It has access to funding. It has people, staffing, resources that that small entrepreneur doesn't have. But the other difference, what is the biggest difference, is while the entrepreneur sees that as a significant opportunity that they immediately decide they're going to go pursue because all they see is the upside, that corporation oftentimes or the manager in the corporation may see it as a threat. Not necessarily something they're going to pursue, but something they have to defend against. Or worse yet, they see it as something that is a novelty, uh, something that is trivial, or something that's not even worth their time. I mean, there is a a CEO uh, who famously said when Netflix uh, first started and they started gaining some traction, um, the CEO of Blockbuster famously said, Netflix and Redbox aren't even on my radar. I mean, he just didn't even give them the time of day. The CEO of Palm Pilot um, said he had no belief, he wasn't worried at all about an upstart of smartphone from Apple. I mean, how's a computer company going to create a phone that anybody's going to want? The cell phone king, which was Nokia at the time, who had a billion customers, same thing. He predicted that he didn't have anything to worry about. And yet in each and every one of those cases, not only are those CEOs gone, but the companies they represented went away as well. So these corporate uh, individuals or the companies themselves, the mindset oftentimes is their mindset is to play defense. Their mindset is to protect their turf, protect their assets, protect their position. But as you might recognize very quickly, it's hard to advance. In fact, it's downright impossible to advance if you're standing still. And imagine yourself wherever you are, if you're in a car or if you're standing up or sitting down, if you don't move, you can't advance. And so by its very definition, that particular mindset or that approach, all you're going to be able to do at best is hold your position. And that might work okay if the world around you, the landscape around you, the industry around you doesn't shift, doesn't change. The only problem is we all know that's just simply not true. Each and every year for the last 40, 50, 60, 100 years or more, regardless of industry, things have changed. They've shifted. They've evolved. The competition has changed. Consumer expectations have changed. Technology has changed. And so these companies that sit there and just want to protect their turf are relegated to seeing what happens around them and hoping that it turns out okay. You know, I just saw another article that Walgreens was looking at shutting down uh, 150 stores, I believe. And while on the surface, you might say, wow, yeah, there's a lot of companies that are pulling back. This is just the start. Walgreens has a target of saving $4 billion this year. They've recently increased that target from $3.5 billion to $4.1 billion. And they're looking at pulling back on staffing, pulling back on stores, pulling back on locations. Now, does that strike you as a move that's offensive? Does this strike you as a move 
where they're maybe sitting in their boardroom saying, hey, you know, things are shifting. Pharmaceuticals, the landscape of pharmaceuticals is shifting. People are able to buy online. In fact, last time I looked, I believe you can get pretty much any pharmaceutical product, prescription product through Amazon now. But instead of saying, hey, let's pivot, and I'll give you a good example, a great example. If you look at Sam Walton again at Walmart, he faced that very same scenario when Amazon started taking more and more and more share. You know, for a period of a decade, if you looked at every retail store out there from Macy's to Bloomingdale's to Nordstrom's uh, to uh, Walmart, Kmart, all of them either were flatlined, had no growth, or actually had negative growth over the course of 10 years, while Amazon had huge growth. Well, instead of playing defense and just saying, well, let's hold on the best we can, uh, Walmart went out there. Those executives very wisely bought an upstart company called Jet that had been around for just a few years and had the audacity uh, to go out and create a a competitor to Amazon. Well, that move to acquire that company, which people may not have understood at the time, has allowed Walmart to continue to be highly successful. And while they're not growing at the same rate as Amazon, when you look over the previous 10 years, other than Amazon, they're the only one with growth. So that's a big one to consider is the mindset of an entrepreneur versus the mindset of a company or a corporation or a specific manager in that particular company. The second one is reducing startup risk in emerging uh, industries. And and as this Forbes article um, accurately points out, entrepreneurs accept the inherent risk of starting a new venture, which sets them apart completely from their risk-averse corporate executives. The reality is those managers, those corporate executives, don't typically want to put their career, their reputation, their income, or their future on the line. And so they're just simply not willing to take a risk unless it's really not a risk at all. In other words, they're willing to move forward on a new project um, or a new opportunity provided they are convinced that there is a ridiculously high likelihood that there's going to at least be some baseline level of success. But otherwise, they're not moving. Those entrepreneurs, on the other hand, are willing to put it, again, to go all in. Now, some may say, hey, David, hold on, time out. But those big corporations, if they're a public company, they've got to consider their shareholders. They've got to protect their shareholders' interests. You're right, they do. But do you protect your shareholders' interests? Did Kmart and Sears... Pan Am, TWA, and others, did they protect their shareholders' interests by getting paralyzed, by no longer innovating, by eliminating creativity, by not having the guts or the audacity to come up with big ideas, big innovations, and pursue them? I would submit to you they didn't serve the best interest of their investors. Their investors' money is gone. And so oftentimes the best way to protect your investors' interests is to be able to pivot and reinvent, rethink, reemerge as a different type of entity. We're starting to see 
some signs of that within the automotive industry. When you look at brands like Jaguar, Volvo, Buick, who are at least attempting taking a shot at reinventing themselves as EV companies. So whether you're pro-EV or not, I could talk all day about challenges within that that uh, dream of going two-thirds EV by 2032. But regardless of that, you got to hand it to them for having the guts to say, okay, we got to rethink things. We are relatively irrelevant within our industry. Those companies had less than 1% market share. And if they did nothing, ran the risk of going the way of Pontiac and Oldsmobile and Mercury and other car companies that are no longer uh, here on the face of the earth. So I hand it to them. But by and large, the vast majority, in fact, nearly every entrepreneur is willing to take that risk. And it's not a matter that they're taking that risk with investor funding. That's not typically the case. You usually don't get institutional investor funding until you're into your growth stage, you know, around a B round, C round, and so forth. Typically, it's their own money initially, as well as maybe friends and family, perhaps once in a while, an angel investor, private investor. So they have everything at risk, not just their income, but their reputation. Because if you don't make it, Good luck raising funding the next time around. So that's another big piece of the of the equation. And the third one called out by Forbes is designing the unicorn strategy to dominate the emerging industry. As they state in the article, entrepreneurs develop unique strategies to dominate an emerging industry. And I can't say this one without laughing a little bit. Because it says these strategies often disrupt. How many times have you heard the word disrupt or disruption, ad nauseum, right? Disruptors are not somebody who comes out with a new product or somebody who does something evolutionary in terms of their customer experience processes or something else, puts in a new phone system. Disruptors change the game. Disruptors completely turn that industry upside down. And as they say in this, in this article, these strategies often disrupt existing business models, which established corporations, these big corporations, cannot emulate without jeopardizing their current operations. Now, think about that statement. Man, what they're saying essentially is sometimes these big companies actually, if they're playing chess, they checkmated themselves. In other words, if they were to attempt to disrupt the industry, they couldn't do that without disrupting their own existing operations, which is which have become the major contributor to their revenue, their gross profit, or their net profit, or their share value, for that matter. Now, the other part of, of what Forbes is saying here, which is really important to focus on, is the fact that these particular entrepreneurs They don't design strategies to enter a market. They're not designing strategies to be a new competitor. They're not designing strategies to even create just a simply a profitable company. They're creating strategies to dominate an entire industry. Sometimes that's an existing industry, and sometimes that's an emerging industry, like, for example, AI. And you've seen what's happened lately with ChatGPT. It literally seems 
like it's coming out of the mouths of pretty much everybody that you know, friend, family, coworker, <coughs> you know, news media. And this is something that just came out. AI has been around for a long while, but ChatGPT has taken it to another level. And by doing so, he's been able to very quickly take on major investment from Microsoft that values his company in the billions as a very young company, but also been able to immediately grab the fascination, the interest, the focus of companies and individuals alike. And by doing that, he is managing to dominate an industry that has honestly been around for a while. So when you consider that, these companies like Airbnb or Uber, they didn't just come in and make a little bit of noise. They didn't just come in and become the latest competitor in the transportation or hospitality space. They're dominant now. Look at Tesla. Tesla, which at one time was an upstart, which was propped up by government funding. There's a chance it wouldn't even be here today if it wasn't for that government funding way back when. But the reality still exists, or the reality still is that when this company started, when Elon started that company, his interest and intention was not to grab a quarter of 1% of the market. His interest was in putting a vehicle out there, the Roadster, to prove that what he said can be done, could be done. His next intention was to put a vehicle out there that that the wealthy uh, could afford to buy, the Model S, the rich, the upper end of the demographic out there economically could purchase and would have an interest. And you know what? It worked. Then he put out the Model X to that same demographic and it worked. But he said, that's not my end game. I want to start there and then start bringing in other models that, that middle class could afford and then what anybody can afford. He did that too. And if you think about it, in a matter of a relatively short period of time, especially when you consider the automotive industry and what it takes to create a new model, think about the fact that how long General Motors, Ford, and uh, Stellantis, which is Chrysler, Dodge, Jeep, Ram, how long have those companies, Toyota, Honda, Nissan, uh, Mitsubishi, Subaru, how long have those companies been on the face of the earth? Decades. Constantly looking for innovations or ways that they could grab more market share. In almost every case, if you look at GM and Ford, for example, and, and Stellantis, they've actually lost market share over the last few decades. But here comes this, this guy from outside the industry, he's never been a car dealer, he's never been in that industry, who boldly said, yeah, I can get done what other companies have attempted to do and failed miserably. And he did. And within 10 years' time, essentially, went from zero to the number one luxury car manufacturer in terms of sales in, in the world certainly the United States. In the last quarter, Q1 of this year, they actually outsold BMW and Lexus combined. So it's pretty amazing when you think about what the power of one's belief, their conviction, their commitment, their passion, and their willing to not just believe 
in their product, their service, believe in what it can do, how it can positively impact their clients, prospective clients. But ultimately, it's also, at the end of the day, the belief that they have in themselves and their willingness to play offense, to go big on offense. The NFL used to be run, run, pass, kick. Now, some of the most prolific offenses out there in in the NFL, they pass on first down. They're pass-oriented, NBA, three-point oriented. They went away from the big man throwing the ball inside. So that's the thing to consider. If you're a small entrepreneur out there, and here's the lesson. If you're a small entrepreneur right now, or you're thinking about becoming an entrepreneur, provided you have a great idea, great clarity, great vision, and 100% belief, you have that risk aversion because you're all in. You believe in yourself and what you're doing. You can take on anybody. There was another article recently that I won't, won't go into now, but there's actually somebody who's attempting to take on Google, uh, which we'll talk about on another episode. And you could look at that today and read that article and say, this dude is insane. But like that great commercial that came out in the 80s from Apple had that quote, those who are crazy enough to think they can change the world usually are the ones that do. So, Wishing you all the best. Thanks so much for taking the time to listen. I hope this has provided some value to you. Uh, Please share it with somebody else if you think it would also provide some value to them. Also, take the time to download or subscribe. I would really appreciate that. And as always, I would love your reviews, whether they're good, bad, or ugly. I really appreciate and learn from all of them. Thanks again, and look forward to seeing you next time. You've been listening to The David Spizak Show. If you haven't yet, please click the subscribe button and leave a rating wherever you're listening right now. I look forward to having you back in the room where it happens. Music.